Welcome to Proof of Decentralization. I am Chris Black, and when we do this podcast, what we try to do is have discussions, have open and frank discussions with DeFi projects. Sometimes it's with the developers, sometimes like today, it's with the, the growth expert of the project. And we try to get to the root of whether or not it's decentralized. And the one thing I've come to realize as we do these podcasts is decentralization has different meanings for different people. And the reason for that is that it's a spectrum. It's not a binary. It's not something that you can say, that's decentralized. That's not decentralized. Because uh, it really is uh, somewhat of a subjective thing. But what's not subjective are the individual aspects of what might play into that. So what we try to do with this podcast is dive in. You might hear things that you're interested in that matter to you. You might hear other things that don't factor into your concerns. Everybody's got a different risk profile. So that's what we're doing here today. And the topic of today's chat is going to be liquidity. And I am very pleased to be joined by Colton, who is, is it the growth uh, director or just the growth guru, head of growth, what growth ninja? What is it? All of them work. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm the head of growth at, at Liquidity AG, which is the company that built and, and deployed the liquidity protocol. Awesome. Well, thank you for um, for joining, and uh, we connected on Twitter. Um, I forget exactly what we were talking about, but there was some kind of little debate going on about something. And I know at one point we had a little back and forth about um, the the front end situation with liquidity and what um, the pr- sort of the pros and cons, which is a topic mm-hmm. that I want to get into with you while we chat here. But um, how did you land there? How did you land at liquidity? Yeah, so I had already been working in the space for a couple of years. I was at the Seller Development Foundation doing community and ecosystem growth. I know some of the more hardcore DeFi users might not uh, like to hear that name or like to hear the name of the Stellar Network, but that's where I was at first. Um, I was looking to actually get into DeFi because that's where I was spending most of my like free time just doing like guild farming, participating in all the protocols. And through a mutual connection, uh, which is Ashley Schaap, she's the growth or formerly growth lead at Uniswap, now an advisor at Uniswap. Uh, through her, I actually met Robert, the founder and CEO of Liquidity, and we ended up hitting it off. And I was like, you know what, this is an awesome project. And so I ended up joining, I think around three or four months pre-launch in January of this year. And then we launched in, in April of this year. That's awesome. See that? Listeners, you too can uh, join a DeFi protocol if you just hang around long enough, if you're smart, if you got the background for it. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, that's that's been my advice to people that want to get involved in the space. It's like, you don't have to be a developer. And Colton's not a developer, right? You're not, uh, nope. I mean, you you mentioned that you had thought about it, but you're not a sit down, hack out some code type of, type of guy. Definitely Neither not, am I. Yeah. Um, but if, you, if you're in the space long enough and you, you can sort of, pick up the knowledge and the skills, you know, you can land at a cool project like, uh, like liquidity. So maybe it would be good. Like I have a pretty good sense of what liquidity is, but maybe it'd be good if you gave the elevator pitch that you give when you're meeting somebody new, since you're the growth guy, you're the sort of sales voice almost for the protocol. So like, how do you describe liquidity to somebody who 
barely knows what DeFi is. Sure. So Liquidity is a decentralized borrowing protocol built on Ethereum. It allows users to borrow against their ETH interest-free. So in other words, they can deposit their ETH as collateral and borrow our stablecoin LUSD against that ETH. And the interest-free part comes from, uh, instead of paying a variable interest rate, like you might pay on MakerDAO or Reflexer, et cetera, you pay a one-time fee at loan initiation, usually around 0.5%. Uh, so that's the that's the simplest pitch. There's all kinds of different mechanisms that make liquidity unique that we can probably dive into over the course of, of this podcast. But uh, the sort of nice points about liquidity are that it's governance-free and immutable, uh, except for maybe some parts, which we'll talk about later, like the Oracle or whatever. Um, and then key, par- but key parameters like the sort of the one-time fee, the collateral ratio, et cetera, are all immutable and, and governance-free. So uh, the, the cool parts about liquidity can't be changed. Okay. So I'm this person who barely knows what DeFi is and says, well, um, we, we've got, there's already, I watched CNBC. I know that there's stable coins, like, sure. um, clearly there's stable coins out there. What, what's the difference between liquidity and why should we, why do we need liquidity when we have like tether? And I'm just being that guy. I just want to hear like your take to, so we can sort of set the, the tone for the conversation. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good good starting point because there are many different types of stable coins. Some are more experimental than others. So when you look at something like USDT, which is Tether, or USDC, which is Coinbase and Circle stablecoin, these are tokens that are sort of issued uh, supposedly uh, against the dollar itself. So people put dollars in a bank account and they get dollars on chain. Uh, something like LUSD is a little bit different because it's backed by collateral. In this case, it's backed by ETH and it's over backed by ETH. So there's for every dollar of LUSD that's issued, a dollar and 10 cents of ETH is backing that that collateral. And why somebody might want the stable coin is, let's say, for example, you have, I don't know, a, a lot of ETH. Let's say you have a million dollars worth of ETH. You might want to unlock liquidity against that ETH without giving up your exposure. And so the way you can do that is by depositing your ETH as collateral and actually borrowing liquidity against that ETH in the form of, of something like LUSD. So the value prop is a little different than something like USDC or USDT in that sense. Yeah, yeah. that's It's, it's tricky sometimes to explain this to people, but um, for those listening that don't, I, there are people that listen to, to this and they they're a little newer to the space and they don't Mm -hmm. really understand how this stuff works. And really the distinguishing characteristic is what's backing the stable coin. So with USDC, with Tether, you've got a token in your wallet. You might see it there. You look at your MetaMask uh, interface and, you know, there's a hundred USDC. That's not a hundred dollars. That's a hundred USDC. That only has worth because there's money in a vault or there's, you know, some other representation allegedly. of, of a dollar. Yeah, allegedly of a dollar. Um somewhere in the tether vaults, in the USDC vaults, in the, you know, in their bank, in their with their partners. Um, as long as you believe that there's that money backing it, that token has value. There's no other reason for that token to have value. None at all. So um there's nothing else backing it. With with liquidity and also, we can get into it a little bit with with MakerDAO and, and Dai, um, and some other coins out there. Um, 
it's a different setup. You're not relying on money in a third-party vault. You're not relying on transparency reports. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes you are, but not always. Um, you're not relying on on traditional financial systems as much. You're relying on ETH. You're relying on ETH maintaining some sort of value, right? It ha- ETH, for any of this to work, people need to believe that ETH has a value of some sort. Right. Um and uh, you know that's basically what these are built upon. And the unique thing with liquidity is that um, liquidity uh, can never be stopped. You know, it's immutable. It's trustless, like Colton mentioned. So maybe give us how do you describe that to somebody who's new to the space? Like, how do you describe the difference between liquidity and MakerDAO in that regard? Man, I think that is the hardest part to pitch about liquidity um and it, it, especially for new people because they already have a hard time kind of wrapping their head around like what a collateral backed stable coin even is and so i think one of the the big areas we focus on in terms of comparing something like Li- liquidity to maker is the governance free aspect so all of the parameters or at least the the large majority of the parameters that uh you may be familiar familiar with in terms of MakerDAO, like the collateral ratio for each vault or the stability fee that you pay for each vault, et cetera. All of these things can be changed and adjusted by governance. And like one of the craziest examples of this was, I don't remember if it was 2019 or 2020, you might have a a better memory for this if you were around then, Uh, whenever the stability fee at one point for, for one of the ETH vaults went from like uh, I don't know, like single digit percentages to like double digit percentages in a couple of weeks. So if you were a borrower, you went from paying, I'm making up numbers here, but you went from paying 5% interest on your loan to paying 20% interest on your loan in a matter of weeks. And you had no say in any of that unless you were a maker holder. Within liquidity, that can't happen. That doesn't exist because these key parameters cannot be changed uh, by governance, by us, by anybody, because the system is set up that way. So I think that's one of the big areas we focus on is this immutability aspect. The other aspect is the removal of the variable interest rate in and of itself. So these variable interest rates have become extremely common in all of DeFi, whether you're using Compound, you're using Maker, you're using Aave. No matter what, you have to pay this sort of variable interest rate that either changes due to governance intervention or it changes due to market conditions. In liquidity, you pay this one-time fee upfront at loan initiation and you pay nothing else. So whenever you pay back your loan, you don't pay an additional fee, et cetera. And the other one is one of capital efficiency. So uh, liquidity is one of the more capital efficient borrowing systems in all of DeFi. The minimum collateral ratio is 110%. So if you put in $100 of collateral, you can borrow up to $90. Now, you don't want to do this. This may be like too risky of a profile here, but the option is there if you so choose. Whereas competitors like MakerDAO, et cetera, uh, they might require something much higher, like 150, 175%. So those are the, I guess, the three big areas that I usually focus on when comparing the two. Yeah, it's interesting as you look at it more and more, you start to see how, I mean, we've always thought as, of DAI as the decentralized uh, stablecoin. Like we, you know, it was the first, it's been around for uh, a while now, three or four years. A long time, yeah. Sure. Maybe even yeah. more, yeah. And it was founded with the idea that we need a stablecoin that's pegged to a dollar that's not reliant on money in a third party vault. You know, it's transparent. You can see what's going on on chain and it's real. Um, 
unique selling proposition was the transparency and it was the fact that there's no company controlling things. It's controlled by this decentralized organization called MakerDAO um, that is making key decisions about the supply, the rates, the um, just all the different aspects of it. And one thing that I learned from hanging around MakerDAO, um, I was hanging around there like sort of 2019, 2020, sort of trying to learn the space. And what I learned was there are so many moving parts to MakerDAO. There are so many knobs and levers that can be tweaked and pulled. Um, now, for them to be tweaked and pulled, they, there has to be votes. There's a transparent system. Um, you know, we can get it more into whether or not it's really transparent later. Um, I do want to talk about that with you a little bit with, you know, the influx of venture capital into the space and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But um, what I'm trying to get at is um, the fact that it's mutable in that regard and the fact that it requires so much maintenance to maintain. Um, when you look at that versus liquidity, which, you know, is the exact polar opposite in that nothing can be changed. Like the things the the knobs aren't there, the levers aren't there. There's no way to add them without creating a new version or a proxy or something. And there's, there's no way to sort of manipulate it in the way that, that Dainis. And when I say manipulate die, it's not like a bad thing. Their, their goal is always to keep it alive. That's really the goal mm -hmm. of the knobs and the levers, right? It's just to keep the yeah. thing afloat. Um, and by the way, the, the other half of, of die that requires lots of manual, intervention are the liquidations you know you need liquidators you need the um those that incentive on that end uh which which liquidity has sort of taken care of too but do you think um i know you weren't part of the founding of the project but do you think that was the idea behind liquidity to sort of be the anti-die was it to be the completely immutable at all costs because that really is what it is it's like immutable at all costs uh, with mm -hmm. any risk, um, you know, it, it was that the idea or was it something else? I think it was definitely a big part of the idea. Um, I, you know, if, if you, anybody who's ever met Robert will know that he's very big on like taking out inefficiencies where they don't, where they just don't need to be. And Maker happens to, in all of its glory, happens to have a lot of these inefficiencies. And so when he was building the system and when Rick was, Rick is the other co-founder was building the system, they were really thinking of like, okay, what are... What do you really need in a stable coin system to make it work? And what do you not need? And let's just take out all of the shit that you just don't need. Uh, can I can I say that? Can I cuss? Sorry. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay, Whatever. cool. Uh, just take out all the things that you just don't need. Because um, a, a lot of DeFi projects have so much bloat and so much unnecessary or so many unnecessary mechanisms that you just you end up creating a system that's more confusing than it is useful. And so the whole idea with liquidity was to fix that, create a system that is extremely useful, extremely simple, extremely nimble that can just work on its own. If you put in too many knobs, as you were mentioning, manual intervention has to take place. And if you can remove all of those and make the system work algorithmically, then you have a pretty simple, elegant system, even with the, you know some of the trade-offs you make. So I do think it was a key part uh, of the design process. Yeah, and you nailed it there in that a lot of people don't realize this, that the reason that we have so much governance and so many DeFi projects with centralized control, like multi-sigs and admin keys and voting systems and stuff like that, the reason that those exist is because of the complexity 
And oftentimes because of the inefficiencies that are built into these projects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I do believe with die being built a few years ago, um, I do believe that they built it in the best way that they could figure out how to build it. I don't think that it was about anything other than um, how can we build this thing in a way that um, will keep it alive in the long term um, so that we can make tweaks and fixes as we learn things. Um, but there are many projects out there that are building these inefficiencies in deliberately because they want to have some sort of centralized control to basically increase their profit over the long term, you know, and to, to find ways to, um, to please their investors and to find ways to please, uh, regulators in the long term. Um, so, uh, I want to give MakerDAO the benefit of the doubt, um, in that regard, but like I said a couple times now, those controls are there, make or doubt to keep it alive. And they've needed mm-hmm. to use them many times in critical situations. Like in 2020 was a, a big one where we had uh, a 40% ETH crash in like a day and all of DeFi was scrambling and MakerDAO had a bunch of issues with liquidations not happening and the die price was uh, going crazy. I think it got up to like a dollar price. 20 or dollar 30 or something like that. Um, do you think that, um, do you think that it's, it's almost reckless to not have like that? I know I'm just sort of just jumping right into it now. Like, do you, do you feel like, um, liquidity would have benefited from having some sort of a back door? Do you feel like it's principle putting principle ahead of safety when you, launch something like this, it's just completely unfixable if something goes wrong with it because everything's, all the knobs been removed, the levers have been removed? Yeah, I, I think it can be if you're not careful. But one thing I want to emphasize is that liquidity, I think they started working on liquidity in like 2019. So it, it, it wasn't this thing that just got spun up over, you know, a summer or something like that and then launched like a lot of these, um, some of these newer protocols or some of these forks are. It was something that uh, went from idea to launch over a longer, much longer period of time. And we, in-house, we have a very, very uh, strict focus on security for these reasons because the consequences in DeFi are extremely high. If you launch something where you can't come in and save the day, like a lot of these projects kind of they're set up to do, if you launch something where you can't come in and save the day, then it's even worse, right? Because at least like if you have a governance structure in place and you launch something sloppily, uh, you can come in and be like, oh, don't worry, we'll liquidate, you know, or we'll sell some some of our treasury assets, we'll cover you, or we'll freeze the protocol and we'll save you. Liquidity doesn't have that. So we had to have this extreme focus on security throughout the whole process. So we've had multiple audits, there were multiple economic reviews, et cetera, um, to make sure that this thing did not break whenever we launched it, because that was the big concern. It's like, if we launch this thing and it breaks, what do we do? Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it could be a problem if you aren't careful, but I think the team took all of the right steps to make sure that that wouldn't be, wouldn't be an issue. Um, it's a hard time. It's hard to know though. Cause like hindsight, like maybe if it broke within the first week or something, we'd be having, you know, a very different, different conversation. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing. It's everybody thinks, um, their stuff's going to work until it doesn't right. Or until yeah. something happens, they weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen it over and over with, uh, 
like we recently saw it with Badger Dow. We've seen it with uh, Maker Dow. We've seen it with you know basically most of the top protocols. The one that we haven't seen it with it, that is immutable that does set a good precedent for this sort of way of thinking is Uniswap version one through three, which are all all three of those are s- similar in that they're immutable, unchangeable. Um, but the um, I guess. How do you um, how do you explain the fact? Like, do you have a good way of explaining why Dai needs all these knobs and levers and why Liquidity doesn't? Like, do you have a good way of as a growth guy, like sort of getting it down to brass tacks? I think it's pure complexity of the system, right? So, one thing about uh, Liquidity that's very different from a lot of these other borrowing protocols is that ETH is the only collateral type allowed, and so the scope of the the entire system is much smaller, right? We created something that's very simple and works exactly as as intended. Whereas Maker, they have this big long roadmap. They have multiple collateral types. They have multiple vault types. They have different ways of assessing risk. They have a different uh, liquidation mechanism, as you hinted at earlier. So they have all of these different things uh, that kind of factor into why they might need governance. Is there Are there a few things that they could probably get rid of? Yeah, of course. Um, but I think a lot of the bloat is due to the ambition of what they're trying to achieve. And I think, you know, there's probably, that's probably a whole conversation in and of itself, but like, um, that's one of the big differences between why liquidity can get away with having so few mechanisms and knobs and levers to pull while maker needs to constantly be adding new ones or constantly tweak the ones they already have, et cetera. Yeah. I was just taking a look. They're up to 9.2 billion massive or no, sorry, 10.8 billion die. I think it is right now. Um, and liquidity, what's liquidity at these days? Uh, maybe like 800 million LUSD, something around 800 there. Million. And it was, you know, it is always um, a big question with um, MakerDAO is how can we increase the supply? How can we mm-hmm. um, not limit this to just what we can eke out of ETH? You know, and that's why at this point with DAI, I think last time I looked, there's only 30 or 40% of DAI is backed by ETH. And most of the other 60 ish percent is backed oddly enough as you may or may not know uh dear listener by centralized stable coins <laughs> so <laughs> you know you start to see what happens and it, it's always been a bone of contention with a lot of people involved with maker dow you have a decentralized stable coin that because it was left open-ended because the dow made decisions that led to this because investors and venture capitalists are involved with the DAO heavily and only want to see the protocol grow and want to see revenue grow, which is their real end game. They want that price of that governance token to grow. They can't grow without the supply growing. And in order for the supply to grow, they can't just be limited to ETH. And in order to not be limited to ETH, they need other forms of collateral. So they turned to centralized stable coins as collateral, which really, in my head, starts to defeat the purpose of what we're trying to do here. I mean, there's obviously a hot debate about that. I don't know what, you know, what your thoughts are. But you know, with Liquidity, you never, at least with this version, and we should call out, you could be listening to this in a year or two, and there very well could be a new version of Liquidity. And I want to ask you some questions about that in a few. But sure. um, what are your thoughts on centralized stablecoins as, as collateral for DAI? I think 
you know, and we don't have to talk about whether or not this is a fallacy or anything, but I think it's a slippery slope, obviously, because as soon as you have a crutch for achieving growth or stability or whatever it is, you lean on that crutch. That's just what human beings do. And whenever you introduce one stable coin type, which is centralized, you're uh, more likely to, to continue doing that in the future. Um, and so I, I, I think we've also seen that where they've started decreasing their reliance on USDC, but now they're starting to increase reliance on, I think, USDP or formerly known as PAX is the other centralized stablecoin. And so you didn't really solve the initial problem, right? You, you, re you reduced reliance on USDC, which is the key criticism, but you increased your reliance on just another centralized stablecoin. And so you never decreased your total exposure to centralized stablecoins. So I think like... I think it's a slippery slope, and I think you have to be very careful about establishing a culture early on that's not really willing to make those sacrifices. And obviously, that that goes without saying. Like, there are situations where maybe there's an emergency and you need to rely on it for some temporary measure. But I think that should be built into the solution from the beginning. Right? This is going to be temporary. We need to turn it off at you know X Y Z date, and then move forward from there. Um, with liquidity, obviously, we didn't do that, but we can get into to why uh, later in the conversation. But yeah, I, I think it's a slippery slope. I think they probably should have avoided it. And I think you would find a lot of people in the maker community who actually agree with that. But they're so far gone at this point that you kind of have to stick with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I was just thinking to myself, like, how many versions of DAI would we have seen by now if they had launched immutably, though? Like, you know, if they yeah. had launched in, in uh, I, I forget, I still don't know if it was, I think it was 2017, maybe. When I think you're right. actually first launched. Like early um, 2017. Yeah. So, um, you know, they very well could have, and they might have even debated doing this, launched without governance. They might have thought about, should we launch in a way that, that doesn't have um, these knobs and levers and stuff like that? Um but for whatever reason, whether they had the grand scope in mind at that time, I'm not even sure. I know there was a lot of controversy in the early days, right. but um, you know, they probably would have, in the last four years, at some point, have learned some major important stuff, possibly even too late, right? So they might have had to move to a new new version, and people might have even lost money because, it, you know, if they didn't have those knobs, they would have. Um, they would have not been able to fix or pause or, you know, like, you know, so now we have liquidity, which did decide to launch in a immutable way in and in an unstoppable way in a way where you cannot have an emergency shutdown. You cannot have um, these safeguards in place that most of DeFi has. So um, do you think that people should expect, like, do you, would you suggest that a liquidity user stay like it's is it a set it and forget it kind of thing because it is immutable or do you think a liquidity user like if if somebody opens a trove deposits their eth for collateral takes out some die to go buy a lambo a lot die some lusd to go buy a lambo um do you think they should be in your discord like every day because <laughs> it's up to them to stay safe it's not you guys can't do anything to protect them if something goes wrong so what do you say to those people how do they navigate this I think if you're a user in this space at all, you should be an extremely active user, whatever that means to you. And you kind of mentioned in the the intro of this podcast, like everybody has their own risk profile, they have their own uh, different risk tolerances. So you should be active to the extent that you know it fits your risk profile. 
as for you know trying to keep up with what's going on within the liquidity ecosystem and how active you should be there i do think to some extent the nature of the protocol makes that a necessity so whenever you're borrowing against your eth right like you have this minimum collateral ratio that you have to maintain regardless so you have to make sure you're at least on top of that and keeping on top of you know how the protocol works and making sure your collateral ratios in a range that you're comfortable with. And so by default, you're probably already a more active DeFi user. And if security is of a concern to you, then yeah, maybe you should be hanging out in the Discord or at least keeping up with the Twitter, um, making sure that you're on top of anything in the sort of evolving liquidity ecosystem. Um, just just to protect yourself and you know maintain your your peace of mind i do think over time as the protocol uh, sits and its immutability right the attack surface kind of starts to shrink because you know if somebody was going to break it they would have breaking it by you know month 10 or month 12 or whatever and obviously that's not to say that just because nobody hacked it in month five that somebody couldn't hack it in month i don't know 15 or something uh, due to some unforeseen bug but um, I think over time, as liquidity sits there and nothing changes and people continue to use it as it attracts more TVL, that the security profile increases. Right. I think it would be useful to sort of walk through how it works. And as we do that, maybe call out the differences between um, liquidity and, and DAI. Sure. Because I, I think it would be good to sort of evaluate the different points at which, um, you know, it there could be issues, mm-hmm. and what people maybe should be looking out for if they do decide to open it up, and and obviously just generally so people understand how it works. But maybe I can start to just lob stuff out there that I know, and then you can correct me. Let's um, do it if I say something wrong. So if I want to open, you know, the goal of using liquidity, obviously as we said, is very simple. You have ETH and you want some represented some representation of a dollar that you can do, you know, whatever you want with. You can go buy more crypto, you can withdraw it uh, and go buy something in the real world, you know, whatever. So you you have ETH, you want to draw that liquidity, liquidity out of it. Um, so you, you know, you go to liquidity, you open what's called a trove, which if you have used MakerDAO is similar to a CDP or um, a, a vault. Um, and that's a smart contract, which you mm-hmm. have to pay gas to create. So first you have to create this trove, okay, which um, might be expensive sometimes. By the way, if you're listening to this when gas is still low, go and just open a trove right now. You don't even have to deposit into it right away, right? You can just open the smart contract. Maybe you have to uh, deposit a small amount. You'll have to deposit. Yeah, you'll have to actually okay. take out some debt. But uh, I'll add that the minimum debt on liquidity is 2000 LUSD. So it's much smaller than something like Maker, for example. Gotcha. Okay. So you create the smart contract. You deposit your ETH. Right away in the same transaction, I think, you pull back out the LUSD Right. Tokens, which are minted, they're new tokens, fresh, mm-hmm. new, shiny LUSD just for you. Never nice been used clean. before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now in the background, what's happening is what I just said. So your ETH is being deposited into a smart contract. That smart contract has no owner. That smart contract is is immutable. There's no admin key. Uh, it's... it's um, it's just there on Ethereum. People forget that this can be, this can happen. Right. <laughs> that you can actually have a smart contract that doesn't easy to have. forget nowadays. Yeah, and the the most important thing to keep in mind with with these kind of smart contracts, 
uh, is that they never, ever, ever die. So um, die, D-I-E, not D-A-I. So even if liquidity in, in 50 years from now, liquidity is on to version 10 or 50 or whatever, uh, and they've learned a ton and they've they've gone through the you know sort of trials and tribulations of DeFi, this smart contract will not leave. This smart contract is going to be here forever and it can be used to do the same exact thing. And it can never be shut down because that's how Ethereum works. And that's actually the case with every smart contract, even the ones with with admin keys. They can't be completely destroyed and removed from Ethereum, but they can be crippled and modified to the point mm-hmm. where you can't really do anything with them. So anyway, back to liquidity. So you deposit your ETH. You can take out, like you said, up to 100 uh, or 90% of what you deposit, yeah. the value you deposit, you can withdraw. But um, now explain to us how the... Um, the liquidation risk and the, the collateralization ratios work. Yeah. So whenever you pull out a loan in LUSD, you're going to be given a collateral ratio. I don't remember the formula off the top of my head. It's super simple though. It's in our docs, uh, docs.liquid.org. But basically it's the ratio of your debt to the value of your collateral. And so the minimum uh, of this ratio is 110%, uh, but the maximum can be whatever you want. So you can be as risk on or risk off uh, as you like as a borrower. Um, this collateral ratio will fluctuate with the value of your collateral. So in this case, ETH. Um, so if ETH goes up, your collateral ratio will also go up. If ETH goes down, your collateral ratio will go down. This is why whenever you see massive ETH dumps, you usually see a corresponding spike in ETH gas fees because everybody's going in to save their ass, right? They're trying to not, they're trying to not get liquidated. If you go below this 110% collateral ratio threshold, your trove will be liquidated. And what this means is that your collateral will be uh, basically taken and then given to stability pool depositors, which is a different mechanism that we can go over later. But in turn, you'll just lose your collateral. However, you get to keep the LUSD that you already borrowed. So in total, you lose around 10% of the total value of your trove. Um, If the inverse of this happens, and let's say like ETH is just skyrocketing, it doubles in price or whatever, you can actually take out more LUSD against that ETH because your ETH is actually worth more. So the system knows the dollar value of ETH because uh, of the oracles built into the system. So ETH goes up, you could borrow more, that'll lower your collateral ratio. Uh, But basically, that's the TLDR of collateral ratios. You can kind of play with them, but they're relative to the uh, they're based on the de- the value of your debt relative to the value of your collateral. Right. So if you make a deposit now of a hundred thousand dollars worth of of ETH at today's price, um, you can you can uh, mint as much as ninety thousand dollars worth mm. of LUSD. Right. But if you do that. You're right at the edge. So if ETH yeah. moves by a dollar or two, you're already in liquidation territory. Yep, so right. it's never advisable to to mint. Uh, and by the way, it's a problem I have with UIs on these uh, these type of products that they almost always default to just the maximum amount that you can pull out, yeah. um, <laughs> which is annoying. Please but don't do you know, that, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Always make sure you're at a re- at a place where, and I think most liquidity front ends. We can get in the front end situation in a minute, but yeah. um, most liquidity front ends show you like here's the price of ETH that it would need to get to for you to get liquidated. You know, so 
you want that to be far enough away to sort of fit your profile as somebody who, you know, if you're not hanging around DeFi all day, every day, like, like me and Colton, you might want to give yourself, you know, a little wiggle room, maybe even down to $1,500, $1,800 ETH um, to make sure that you're safe. You know, if you have, um, if the the liquidation price is like a hundred dollars less than what it is right now, then you're just in a, in a place where you're just in danger. So you need to be careful with that. The difference with, um, now with, with, um, other protocols like MakerDAO, Compound, Aave, they have, I think they all still have, um, sort of this liquidation market where people have to run, you know, bots or keepers or whatever they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have to liquidate, um, the, the loans as they become liquidatable, right? So there has to be that sort of it's gamified where people have the incentive financially to go and liquidate loans, pay the gas fees to do so. Um, so people have become a little accustomed to if gas is really high, they have more wiggle room on that ratio almost because it's not worth it for people to liquidate you if they're not going to make more than what they'd pay in gas. Is that still the case with liquidity or is it is it different? Is it more of a hard line at that ratio? Uh, it's it's kind of similar in that you no matter what, whenever um, the outcome of a smart contract depends on some external person coming in, uh, that that part is the same. So whenever a liquidation occurs, somebody usually bot operators at this point come in and they have to call the liquidate function. They have to say these troves are below that uh, 110% ratio, and so they need to be liquidated. In return for that, they get a flat 200 LUSD. And then they get uh, 0.5% of that trove's collateral. Uh, and the rest of that collateral is sent to the stability pool, which I'm happy to dive into how that works if you want me to. Um, yeah, l- well, let's do that in a minute. Uh, okay, I just want cool. to <laughs> yeah. finish that point. Yeah, because that's a big topic. Um, but that makes sense, you know, and um, that's an interesting part of liquidity that is still human oriented, right? Is mm-hmm. that. <clears throat> the liquidations can only happen at the rate um, that people are willing to to do them, right? And so it is. A, it's a gamified system. Um, mm-hmm. If the day comes where just nobody's hanging around DeFi anymore and nobody cares and you know whatever for whatever reason, yeah, you might get might, away with some crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting in that regard that this is not an entirely um, automated system. I'll say it. It's trustless. It's immutable, but it's not entirely just a bot you're dealing with. It's not like you're um, just dealing with a bunch of robots and you know stuff like that. It's still an ecosystem that that's organic in mm-hmm. that regard. You mentioned before, and I kind of skipped this, but it's important. There's no interest rate. You're not being charged interest on a liquidity loan. Like with MakerDAO, you could be getting charged anywhere from half a percent to I don't know what their highest interest rate is. Um, but let's say a few percent on the amount that you, um, mint the amount of dye that you mint. Right. So if you mint a hundred thousand dye, um, you could be getting charged one, two thousand dye extra per year, um, as an interest rate with liquidity, there's zero interest rate because you're getting charged a flat stab- What do you call the fee? Uh, we just call it a one-time fee. It's just like basically the yeah, one just a flat fee. fee. <laughs> flat. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't think we have a specific name for it. Come on, you're the marketing guy. We need a better I know, name I'm the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you're charged, what is it, half a percent? 
Uh, that's sort of the default. Now it can go up based on uh, another mechanism, which we might have to go into later called a redemption mechanism, but it, it's generally around 0.5%. Uh, it, it, every once in a while it might spike up to 1%, but that's whenever that happens, it deters people from taking loans, which it's supposed to do. Uh, so usually most people are borrowing at 0.5% or so. Okay. But you said it can change. So when it changes, is it it's part of this immutable system. It's not something that can be changed by any one right. person. It's part, it's part of the immutable system. So it's predictable. Yeah. yeah, it's predictable. You'll know that you're about to pay whatever fee. So if you see that the fee is 0.8% and you just don't want to pay that, you don't have to. And then you, all you have to do is wait uh, probably like a day or two for it to actually go back down. I think it has a half-life of like 12 hours. So it ticks back down to 0.5% automatically. Okay. It it's you know with a with a system like this where it's completely set in stone, you know nothing can be changed. You mentioned like MakerDAO has raised their rates like crazy amounts sometimes, and um, people are caught off guard. With liquidity, um, you know, first of all, you don't have the interest rate, so you don't have to worry. Once you have your LUSD, you have it. Like there's no mm-hmm. extra fee. You got that one time fee. But even if the one time, like let's say you're planning to um, mint some LUSD next week, you know, for whatever reason. And, uh, the rate goes up between now and then you're going to know in advance, like there's no, there's nobody sitting there pulling a lever saying the rate's going to go up. You're not going to want to go into discord and start to complain because the reason it went up is because something very predictable happened. And what I suggest, uh, you know, with any protocol or project that is immutable like this, for instance, Uniswap, you know, again, um, learn it. Like it's all there. Like it's all set in stone. Once you learn how this works, it's not going to change. It can't change. So it's worth it to take the time to fully understand every aspect of it. Um, and that's why I did like a 15-part a course uh, trying to teach how Uniswap worked because I know that course is going to be good for the rest of time. Because it can never change, you know. At least that version of it can never change. So, with liquidity, there's really no excuses um, with regard to the fees and things like that. Like it's all there for you to understand. Now, most people won't take the time, which sucks for them. But that's uh, DeFi Darwinism, man. It's like you know. Yeah, I know. It's tough. So um, now, before we get into the um, the pools and stuff, you mentioned oracles before, and I know that there's people listening who are probably already annoyed that I didn't. <laughs> call it out right away but i you know i always plan to get to it so for those who don't know how this stuff works when a DeFi protocol for whatever reason is reliant on a price a like us dollar price of an asset uh for its markets for liquidations whatever it might be uh that price is never um it's not native to the blockchain right it's the blockchain, and same applies to any blockchain, Bitcoin, you know, most other crypto projects don't know the price. Bitcoin has never known its price. The Bitcoin protocol doesn't care what its price is. It's always going to do the same thing. Same with the um, ETH protocol. You know, it's like it, it doesn't know what its price is. It just knows it exists. It knows uh, that it has gas. You know, it knows it doesn't know that your gas at... Uh, 50 guay or whatever it might be today is actually going to cost you out of your pocket $150. It doesn't know that. It just knows 50 guay and it knows the 
actual amount of ETH that you have to pay for the transaction to work. So in order for that to get translated into dollars, you need these oracles. And oracles take different forms. I've recently, like the other day, we had a DeFi project that was using coin market cap as an oracle for whatever reason, oh which is a highly centralized, you know, price feed. So basically, look at it this way. I could create a price feed right now for Bitcoin and say it's a million dollars of Bitcoin and somebody might want to use that. Uh, and it's completely bullshit, right? Because it's like, we know it's not true. Like, so any anything can be an oracle. It's all about whether or not you trust it and also who's controlling it and whether or not the oracle itself is decentralized. So with all that being said, tell me um, why, why liquidity uses an oracle. And aside from what I just said, if there is another reason, and then um, why we should trust it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like you mentioned, an oracle is this like necessary piece of infrastructure that deals with data like external to the smart contracts, right? And so I mentioned earlier in explaining how collateral ratios work that liquidity needs to know the value of ETH um, on the open market. There are many ways to pull this data. It might be, like you mentioned, it could be just one person in their room like calling the contract and saying ETH is worth this price, or it could be a centralized API. Or you have these other solutions like Chainlink, Telor, Band Protocol, and there's probably a host of others that I'm missing. But whenever users take out a loan on Liquidity, Liquidity needs to know the price of ETH. It calls the Oracle to get that price. Uh, whenever a user is doing a redemption, which is a mechanism we haven't really touched on, that's another reason that you know Liquidity might need to know the price of ETH. Or whenever uh, somebody's doing a liquidation, so we mentioned these keepers, they come in and they call the contracts to say, hey, this trove is actually below the minimum collateral ratio. Liquidity needs to know the price of ETH to actually verify whether or not that's true. Um, as for why <laughs> why you should trust the Oracle, um, that's, a, that's a pretty long and probably hard conversation. But I think all in all, Liquidity uses a pretty unique Oracle mechanism that I don't think exists anywhere else in DeFi. So we have, um, we use two Oracles. We use a primary Oracle, which in this case is Chainlink, and we use a secondary Oracle, which is Teller. Um, and the protocol knows how to switch back and forth between the two in the event that one fails. Um, so let's say Chainlink starts spitting out bad data. Each time Liquidity smart contracts call that Oracle, it verifies that data against the other Oracle. So it verifies the Chainlink price against Teller and vice versa. And so it knows whether or not somebody is giving us misinformation and it knows how to switch back and forth between these Oracles based on that information. And in the event that both fail, it just takes the last good price that the system had. So it, it knows what the last good price is as well. Um, we can dive into each uh, Oracle and why we chose them if you want, but that's kind of the general overview. How if the blockchain and the smart contract, they don't have any concept, they have no connection to the outside world, right? So they they can't know what the price is outside of what the Oracle is telling them. And mm -hmm. there's two Oracles involved here. How does it know if Chainlink is off by 10% or 
So it looks at the teller oracle. So anytime the oracle is called, which is whenever somebody's borrowing or doing a redemption, et cetera, the scenarios I mentioned earlier, it compares the two prices. So it compares the chain link. And, the, and I don't have the specifics off the top of my head, but it knows within a certain uh, threshold that, okay, chain link is maybe misreporting a price by like 40%. This is weird. Uh, teller is probably the correct price or vice versa. Like it I don't know the full. Um, yeah, but how could it know that it's got two? It's got two prices coming in from two different oracles. It doesn't trust one of them more than the other, right? They're both they're sure. just price feeds. Um, so to say, like Chainlink price drops by thirty percent. Well, that's weird. Let's look at Teller. Teller's still at the price it was before, within a dollar or two. Um. What's to say that there wasn't just a massive market crash? Chainlink just accurately represented it, and Tellor is kind of stuck and hasn't really caught up yet. Like how how does that part of it work? Because this is a critical. This is probably the most controversial and um, sort of, um, um, I would say, centralized. I guess part of this whole mechanism. It seems like to me so. How does it does how does it know? It seems like if there was a this is a potential area where if there was another black swan type of event, it could be the one spot where this whole thing breaks. Yeah, so I mean it, it kind of looks at data and says like whether or not uh something is broken. So uh, I think like it when it looks at the Chainlink Oracle or it looks at the Teller Oracle, like Chainlink might report a negative value or it might report a zero value or it might um the two oracles might report a 50 percent deviation between uh consecutive price updates so let's say um i think by default Chainlink is supposed to report a price between i think every 0.5 percent deviation and so let's say it goes from reporting uh i don't know uh the price of ETH is $1,000 here, and then it's $500 in the next deviation, that's when it would know to check against Tellor uh, for more accurate data, right? So it doesn't doesn't know what the... So there might be like one call of the Oracle that is not as great as it should be, but, but if, you, if you don't have uh, this, like if you don't have a way to measure those, then it the system obviously doesn't know any better. So you have to wait between calls. And so if the last call is price of $1,000. The next call is price of $500. It's got to check that against Tellor to know. So there might be this one little call where it's it's kind of weird and it's giving weird data. But after that, it'll know like, okay, one of these is giving false data. So let's switch. Let's use the Tellor price feed because Tellor works based on this tip-based model, which is a little bit different than Chainlink. And then whenever the next call happens, it'll compare the two, see if they're still good. If not, then it'll switch back. So it's not an absolutely perfect uh, system that knows every single price update that's happening. It, it doesn't know exactly uh, for sure based uh, on what, whether the current price is accurate or not. It has to make best guesses based on the information that it has. And so the system is set up to kind of do just that. Uh, so there's like, okay. we, we have this really long doc that goes through like all of the scenarios and I don't know them all off the top of my head, but there's all kinds of scenarios that it knows whether or not to switch back and forth. Is it absolutely 100% accurate and perfect? Probably not, but that's also like uh, an impossible problem in DeFi, right? And something we're still working on when it comes to, to solving oracles. Okay. Um, so 
And by the way, the docs for Liquidy are at docs.liquidy.org, and I recommend you go yeah. and, and pour through them. If, yeah, they're extensive, but don't be intimidated if you're not a developer, because I, I looked at the stuff, and a lot of it's in plain English, and a lot of it is important information if you're going to rely on this for the safety of your ETH. You know, And so as you explain the Oracle stuff, the two things I'm sort of hearing and that I'm, I would say are, would be points of concern for me are... One, if Chainlink messes up, um, it's very it's heavily reliant on Chainlink um, operating with integrity, right, and, and working properly. And I understand there's a fallback mechanism, but um, it's sort of a two layer problem because if Chainlink doesn't, if Chainlink something happens one day and there's a black swan event that we're not expecting, which by the way can happen, probably will happen eventually. Um, we haven't faced all the challenges we're ever going to face in DeFi. I always remember that. Uh, you know, it's like we we think we know it all, but we don't. Okay, so something happens one day, chain link snafus, um, then the liquidity smart contract in some fashion knows, okay, we're gonna take a look at at Teller now and mm-hmm. we're gonna rely on that Oracle. Um, we're now switching from relying on Chainlink to relying on Tellor, which might have a different sort of set of risks. And and um, I mean, it's also you know as decentralized as we know how to do right now with Oracle. Yeah. Um, but so we're, then we're relying on really these two teams, Chainlink and Tellor, to um, keep this thing sort of afloat. But we're also relying on that mechanism that is still kind of not battle tested in the liquidity system to make that switch and to know to make that switch and to know to do it at the right time and to know when chain link is broken and it's not just mis- it's not reporting accurately. And like I said, if there is that flash crash type of situation, and I know chain link has been chain link knows how to handle flash <laughs> crashes. I yeah. get that. You know, it's, it's more about, um, is this infallible? And I will say right now, like any DeFi project that says it's infallible, like, you know, a lot of Chainlink supporters like to say on on Twitter all the time, you know, it's it's nonsense. You should, um, you know, if a developer tells you nothing can ever possibly go wrong with their project, you should get the hell out, like never stick around, (laughs) (laughs) right? It's like, you know, but it's so it's important. Famous last words. Yeah. And I will say this, I'm a huge fan and I am an advocate for fully decentralized immutable projects just like this. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, this type of situation where it couldn't be fixed. So if something did go wrong with the Oracle, everybody would just be sitting there watching it happen. Like, you know, there's really nothing anybody can do. You know, the developers, the users, nobody. The, even the all-powerful God mode venture capitalists out there can't do anything to fix liquidity if something goes terribly wrong or if that that switching mechanism doesn't work the way it's supposed to with MakerDAO, you almost have that like customer service uh <laughs> yeah component, sure. you know with the DAO like sort of sitting there and like scrambling and making sure you know running around like little rats and fixing things uh in the development teams and stuff like that so um you know do you think um I mean, what what kind of discussions happen internally around, and I'm sure like the Oracle thing has been, you know, it probably was painful to have to put it in in the first place because it's yes, like, it was. This shit? Yeah. Um, but but like, do, 
is there is that the weak point? Would you say that's the weakest spot of the project, or is there something else that might even be more weak? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what you value. Um, but if in a pure decentralization context, yeah, I would say the Oracle is the weak point, but it's also the weak point in the entire space, right? The Oracle problem is something that we really have not figured out in a way that I think would uh, make decentralization maxis proud. Um, you know, Chainlink has its certain level of decentralization. Teller has its own certain decentralization um, metrics, same band protocol, TWAPs, all these different options have, uh, you know, certain levels of decentralization that may or may not make somebody happy. Um, and at the end of the day, if we, if it was possible to build liquidity without relying on an Oracle, we obviously we would have done it um, because that would have been, that would have been amazing, right? Because now you have a system that can live entirely on its own without relying on anything else. Um, but when it came to actually picking a, an Oracle, we had to do it such that we were confident in the security practices of the other team, which according to our standards are really high. So we need to make sure that the other team's security practices are really high. Uh, Chainlink and Teller both kind of met uh, that sort of threshold for us. Um, but we also had to make sure that user experience uh, was maintained. And so if you consider something like if we would have picked a TWAP, for example, or a time-weighted uh, average price Oracle or whatever that you can uh, build using Uniswap, uh, that would have been much riskier for users from not only a practical perspective, but a user experience perspective, because we could not have guaranteed liquidity of that pool. We could not have guaranteed that that DEX would be relevant in a year or two, uh, but we did have better guarantees that Chainlink would be around for a year or two and that Teller would be around for a year or two. And we also have guarantees about the quality of that price data. Uh, so it's just kind of this trade-off we had to make. Um, I wish we didn't, and I'm sure every protocol feels that way. Uh, like I wish we all didn't have to make these price oracle uh, trade-offs, but it is what it is. And I have confidence that, you know, and I'm, I'm not just patting Chainlink and Teller on the back and stuff, but I have confidence that those teams can, you know, continue to innovate in the oracle space and hopefully get us to a spot where everybody's happy with the the oracle landscape. Maybe you feel differently, but I think it could be really interesting over the next few years if they can actually, you know, figure that stuff out. Can the oracles in liquidity be modified? Like, can you add an oracle, remove an oracle? No, we cannot. So the the current oracles that we're that we chose, Chainlink and Teller, are the ones that will be there for forever. And I think what's important to note here, and I guess since we're talking about security, is that these two oracle services use proxy logic uh, pattern in their contracts, and so we know that. Uh, they can make changes to the Oracle that are hopefully, of course, beneficial to um, themselves and also equally beneficial to us uh, without the underlying contract address changing. So like, let's say Chainlink one day decided, oh, we want to just randomly change, or if they didn't use this proxy logic pattern and they one day just randomly changed their contract address for the ETH USD price feed, then that would be problematic. And so we had to have guarantees that that wouldn't happen because we couldn't go in there and actually change that ourselves. Okay. <clears throat> but if in uh, two years' time, uh, Teller decides, you know what, we're going to shut this thing down um, because we're just not into it anymore or whatever, or they sure. sell to Chainlink or something, you know, sure, for whatever yeah. reason, uh, there's no way to remove it as an Oracle. There's no way to right. replace it as an Oracle. So would then, with Liquidity, if one of the Oracles is no longer valid for whatever reason or not maintained, uh, would Liquidity have to then move to a version two 
and ask all users to migrate? It depends. I mean, I, I guess it depends on what how the community feels about it, right? And I think a lot of the people who use Liquidity are comfortable with it the way it is, or at least I hope, or comfortable with it to the extent that you can be comfortable using any DeFi protocol. Um, if it, it came to a point where, you know, let's say Teller or Chainlink or whoever just disbands and they no longer exist, and the community refused to use a system that relied just on one Oracle, um, and, and maybe they demand that we deploy a new one with, with new whatever, then I think they would vote with their money, right? And they would start closing their troves. They would stop using LUSD, et cetera. And so the system would really begin to unwind in a way that is still healthy, right? Because there's an Oracle in place. But let's say the system starts unwinding and they just refuse to use the system with one Oracle. Then, yeah, I think it makes sense for us to deploy a V2 and figure out how we get those users onboarded to the new system. But if that happens and users are still comfortable with the system as is, let's say it solely relies on Chainlink or solely relies on Teller, then of course, maybe there it doesn't make sense to, to migrate everybody. I think it really just depends on community. And the cool part about being governance free is that they're not voting with some arbitrary token. They can just vote with their feet and vote with their money and leave if they don't like the protocol as designed. And we would have to figure out a way to design a system that you know brings those users back. Yeah, it's funny because it sounds like governance, right? Um, sure. But there's no governance token and there's no organized uh, system for this to happen. And in order for that new version to be built, the liquidity team would still need to exist, right? So, you know, unless it's passed on like through generations or whatever. You know, it's like <laughs> with, with this kind of stuff, people think I'm crazy sometimes, but, you know, we want these systems to be around for a long time. Like we're not mm. building, you guys aren't building liquidity just to be around for a year or two or even five. You're building liquidity to be around for 50 years. Right? So it's like, yeah. you know, when we start to think about, okay, in 50 years, can we really expect that Chainlink and Teller are still going to be the best options for oracles? No. I mean, it's, naive to think that yeah obviously a, a chain link maxi is going to think that but like it, like it's naive to think that we're not going to see a lot of changes in the next 50 years so what's the there's there's no set mechanism for liquidity to upgrade um now liquidity is going to want to upgrade like there's no possible way in 50 years we're going to want to be using the same version of liquidity we're using right now um, but there's no set in stone way as there is with MakerDAO or with other DeFi um, protocols that are upgradable. Um, now, I'm not saying this as like it's a negative. I'm saying this like it's it's a it's almost like a preference, right? It's like you know the ones that are upgradable formally are going to upgrade, and they're going to upgrade through these mechanisms, voting mechanisms, multi sigs, whatever. Um, and it's going to happen in a centralized way, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, but when you're looking at liquidity, you're looking at the other alternative, which is here it is. This is what it looks like. You can use it or not. Um, maybe we'll do a new version later. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, who knows if the liquidity devs, you know, are all on the same plane and it goes down, that's it. There's no V2, you know? So it's like, not to, again, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm dooming not gloom, going on like, any planes anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is that it's it's not set up to be upgraded. So, um, yeah. you know, like if you don't like it, you pull out. That's it. Now, 
Some people might like that. Some might not. Some might want to be in something for 50 years that they know is going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the nature of decentralization. And it's very similar to how, how Bitcoin has evolved, you know, and, and, and worked. And if at any point you don't like what's happening, you pull out, you go somewhere else. You don't like that, you move on. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's important that people understand the trade-offs that happen because this is, again, it's a scale. It's a scale between yeah. decentralization and and sort of like this this feeling of safety. You know, um, decentralization, right. full decentralization, never feels totally safe. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think that's part of it, and I I want to just add, I think you know the that type of governance is my favorite type of governance, the one where you can vote with your money and your feet as a customer. You just get to choose some to use something, or you don't. You're not like there's not this like pissing match between token holders about like, you know, what the best decision is or how you should move forward. Because I mean, if we re if we rewind a bit and we look at, you know, the history of maker maker did used to be single collateral. It was purely backed by ETH or die rather it was purely backed by ETH and which is now known as Psy. But whenever the multi-collateral die upgrade happened, there were a lot of people who were not happy with that upgrade. And I think if they had the choice, they would have preferred not to go down that route, but because maybe they didn't hold enough tokens or whatever, the vote just didn't go their way. And so the system evolved in a way that maybe they're just no longer a customer anymore, um, even though they may have been a token holder and felt like they were part of governance and all of this stuff. Whereas with liquidity, yeah, maybe a transition to a V2 or something like that may not be as clean as some, something with governance and upgradable contracts, et cetera. But the way in which you vote on the system you like the most is arguably just more desirable because you can still remain confident that the system you like is a system you'll still be able to use you know, down the road. Um, and we've seen Uniswap do this um, with pretty good success, right? Like Uniswap V2 is still used quite frequently today, even though Uniswap V3 from a tech perspective is better. And I think if Uniswap V1 uh, was a little more advanced, people would still be using that today. So um, that's just my favorite way to do governance. I think a lot of our team agrees with that, even though it may not be the smoothest or the most clean. Yeah. Uniswap almost had the reverse problem where they put out V3 when you know, there really weren't a lot of complaints with V2 mm-hmm. uh, from people who are using it, especially for, you know, for staking and liquidity mining and stuff like that. And then V3 came along and a lot of people decided, you know what, our projects and stuff, they decided we're not moving. V2 is fine. Like this is, let's just keep using V2. Um, so V3, I'm not sure where it's at right now, but, you know, it's it's been it hasn't had the growth, I think, that a lot of people like. It's not like everybody just moved, right? right? So it's it's similar to like as if Liquidity next week launches a V2 that the team thinks is way better, but a lot of users are like, well, maybe not, or maybe Liquidity wants to launch a multi-collateral V2. I don't know. Not that you would, but you know, people that want single collateral will stay over here. They they didn't really have that option with Dai. Like Dai, the difference with Dai is. The DAO just like it was an all out campaign to move people from single collateral right. die over to multi class. So it was really a concerted effort um, that they could only do because of the malleability of the of the logic of the code. And uh Liquidity wouldn't have wouldn't have that option. So uh it is really interesting to think about and it is something that you should consider before you decide where you want to mint your stable coins and 
on that note too, you were saying like, you know, it's this whole like single collateral um, ETH only with liquidity um, pegged to the dollar. But then there's other stablecoin projects out there that maybe are only using ETH as collateral, but aren't pegged to a dollar and they're trying different things, right? They're trying, you know, and there's all, there's every kind of experiment you could imagine going on out there. A lot of them you might never be hearing about. Um, and a lot of them might be too small to consider, but it's all happening, you know? So even the question of whether stablecoin should be pegged to a dollar, it sounds like crazy, this ridiculous to say they shouldn't, but cause it, and in my head, it's not stable anymore, but, um, you know, the, the Oracle thing. Yeah. I'm glad we had that little chat and I, we, we might come back to it again before we finish, but I do think that that, you know, just in full honesty, that is one spot that makes me nervous. And, um, by the well, way, it's a what, fair so, concern. And Dai's Oracle situation right now, I'm not, I haven't kept up with it. Do you know how it's different? Um, I, I don't know the full details. I do know that it's in uh, a system that they built in house. Um, I'm not sure of the technical details. I'm not sure of the security model. Uh, if you ask somebody who is a Chainlink fan, they <laughs> they might have some choice words, or, or maybe even uh, some other protocol evangelists might have some choice words. But um, yeah, it, it's an in-house model, and so uh, that's the way you know Maker likes to do things. So if you're if you trust Maker, you're kind of trusting the full full Maker stack and circling back really quick to it, like about options. Uh, this might sound weird coming out of a growth person's mouth, but like, I don't think that liquidity is the option for everybody, right? That would be extremely silly for me to think that. And so, yes, it is important that you compare your options when you're looking at different protocols and you find one that makes sense for you. And hopefully um, we built enough trust with our community and the ecosystem around us that liquidity is that option. But it may not be. You might like the comfort of knowing that governance can come in and make changes and maybe save you if things go wrong or they have their own Oracle solution or whatever. That may be more comforting to you. And if so, by all means, please use the thing that is most comfortable for you. This is There's real money at stake here. And these are real human beings. And so we want to make sure that people are using stuff that they're comfortable using, not just me like selling our product or our bags or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Would you ever, in this situation, suggest liquidity for somebody who's um, brand new to the space, maybe isn't hanging around here every single day, maybe isn't keeping up on every development, but just maybe they bought 500 ETH, you know, uh, five years ago, and they just realized it's worth a ton of money and they need a down payment for a house. Like, is liquidity the place to go for that person? Personally, I would. I think if you're participating in the maker ecosystem, there's a lot more for you to keep up with, right? You have variable interest rates. Uh, you have things like the dust parameter, which is the minimum debt uh, is constantly changing, which could affect you. Uh, the minimum collateral ratio might change, which could affect you. So there's all these things that could constantly be evolving that could affect you. And if you're not keeping up with the space, then keeping up with those things would be an absolute nightmare because you have to go read the forum, keep up with the votes, figure out whether something passed or not. Uh, whereas with liquidity, you kind of know the deal you're getting up front. And so, yeah, it might take a little bit more uh, preliminary work to familiar, familiarize yourself with the system, understand the risk, et cetera. But once you borrow, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And so if you're somebody who's really, really uh, wants to be as hands-off as possible, then yeah, I, I would suggest liquidity to those people. I think we've built a, a big enough ecosystem now, a big enough security profile to where I'd feel comfortable making that recommendation. Um, and uh, let me caveat though, there's there's a star next to this where if you're very new 
then I suggest you not use leverage at all. <laughs> Please don't be <laughs> borrowing against anything at all unless you're really familiar with the underlying mechanisms. But if you're comfortable with that and you're just looking for a protocol to choose from, yeah, I think liquidity is a really good option for people who are new and relatively hands-off. Yeah, I guess the challenge would be to make sure you're somehow connected still to the development and to the um, just to the ecosystem in case there's a situation mm. where things don't go as planned. It would be good, you know, business opportunity for somebody listening is, um, you know, sort of like whether it's an email alert or something like maybe it exists already, but some kind of just updates with how's it going with liquidity. I put a hundred ETH in there. I pulled out my LUSD. I'm off on an Island somewhere, you know, on my vacation. I have no idea what's going on on the blockchain. I watch CNBC for the price action. I don't know. I don't care about DeFi. Um, you need to stay tuned. You just have to stay tuned because you don't know. It's all experimental still, you know, so mm. you need to make sure that you're ready to act if something goes um, haywire, which it could, it could, right, Colton? Yeah, it could. No, something it could go could. wrong. Anything is possible. Anything could okay, go wrong. Thank you. That was a yeah. test. You passed. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing, nothing could go wrong. Um, okay, so we we detoured earlier away from like stability pool and that sure and how that works, but um, it's a good time to get into that. So the um, you deposit your ETH, you pull out your your LUSD, um, and you can run off with that, cash it out into dollars if you want. But in the meantime, your debt is is still in the system, your collateral is still there, and there's a liquidation risk if prices drop unfavorably to you. So explain to us um, how that all works after that and how the stability pool plays into it. Yeah, so I think the stability pool is really one of Liquidity's like biggest innovations in terms of borrowing protocols. So you mentioned earlier that uh, Maker and Compound, et cetera, they have these um, these mechanisms that keepers have to come in and liquidate positions, but they also have these auction mechanisms, right? So when you liquidate, that collateral has to go somewhere, and then that trove that trove or positions associated debt needs to be paid off to ensure that LUSD is sufficiently backed, and so somebody has to come in and buy that collateral in order to pay off that debt. Um, the reason that Maker ended up uh, having that uh, debacle that it had the one time that people had to come in and try to backstop the protocol with Maker, the Maker auction, et cetera, is because the auction uh, was, I think it was something to do with like ETH gas prices were insanely high. And so uh, people were making $0 bids to buy the collateral. And so people were taking collateral out of the system that was liquidated, but they weren't fixing the debt like they weren't making the debt whole again. And so liquidity kind of solves this problem by completely getting rid of, of this auction mechanism. And instead it says, you know, users can commit LUSD upfront to underwrite all of these loans. And so the incentive to do that is twofold. You deposit to the stability pool and you earn our secondary token, which is not a governance token, LQTY. And then you earn um, liquidated collateral in the event that a trove is liquidated. So when a trove gets liquidated, that ETH is sent to the stability pool depositors and spread proportionally. And then LUSD is burned from the stability pool in, er in order to pay off the debt with that associated that's associated with that position. And so this happens instantly when that liquidation is called. So you get rid of that uh, sort of auction mechanism that could take 40 minutes to clear, it could take an hour to clear, it could a zero bid might clear, et cetera. 
Um, and this is the reason that liquidity allows for a much lower collateral ratio than something like MakerDAO because Maker needs that cushion to account for the auction time. So if an auction takes 40 minutes or an hour to clear, the price of ETH might fall 20% in that time frame, And it could be that now the person participating in that auction doesn't make as much money from purchasing that collateral. Whereas with liquidity, we instantly settled that. Stability pool depositors get a nine point whatever percent discount on ETH. And then that debt is paid off instantly from LUSD sitting in that stability pool. Was that clear? I'm okay. sorry if I skipped yeah, over Yeah, so let me, let me try to um, unwind that. So from one end, from the end of somebody who's opened a collateral position and, and wanted to um, take out some LUSD, um, so you deposit a hundred ETH, you take out, you know, uh, 50 grand or whatever. Um, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. So, uh, you take that out and now you can take 20,000 of that and go buy a car and you still have 30,000. Okay. What do I do with it? Well, one option is deposit it into the liquidity stability pool. Right. Okay, so you can only deposit LUSD into this pool. Okay. Right. So when you deposit into this pool, you're part of this LUSD pool that is used to um, to liquidate underwater positions. Exactly. Right? So the pool itself is actually buying underwater ETH um, positions, right? At a discount. Yeah. So whenever you, yeah, whenever that liquidation happens, you get usually around. I, I think the the last average that I ran was like a nine point something percent discount. So when ETH is dropping um, and a position gets liquidated, you're not buying that ETH at market price. Whenever LUSD is removed from the stability pool, they're buying it at market price with a 9% discount because of okay, the over collateralization, so right? The pool is actually LUSD and ETH then, right? Because it's buying ETH from the troves that are underwater. Yeah. So kind of, but they're kind of separated. So you have this container that you know, has the ETH gains, and then you have this container that has the LUSD. And so LUSD will slowly trickle out of this, the, you know, the container of LUSD while ETH gains go into the container of ETH. But that ETH is never used for anything. It's purely um, uh, gains for the depositors that they can claim and then do whatever they so choose with them. Okay. So if I deposit LUSD into the stability pool, I should expect to, when I go to withdraw, to have less LUSD than what I put in. Exactly. And I'll also have access somewhere to to eat, to a portion of the ETH pool. Yep, that's right. So you'll have, um, it, it also depends on the time frame, right? There could be, you could sit in it for two months and there would be no liquidations and you would just have the same amount of ETH and all you would get is the LQTY reward on top. Um, but let's say you sit in it for a year, the odds that there's liquidations in a year are extremely high. So at the end of the year, yeah, you would take out LUSD, it would be probably uh, meaningfully less than the amount of LUSD put in, but you would also have ETH gains to claim, which should be more uh, worth more in terms of dollar value than the LUSD that you lost. In theory, unless yeah. ETH just I mean, has ETH a would really have year. To, yeah, very bad yeah. year, then yeah. So there is some, um, there is some risk, mm -hmm. you know, in that it's almost like thinking about uh, an AMM liquidity pool in a way, and not in the mechanism, but in the fact that you're you're uh, somewhat betting on ETH when you deposit in the stability pool. You're, you're betting on the right. value of ETH rising and not dropping um, too much, at least, you know, yeah, because you are right. going to be purchasing some ETH 
over the course of that year. Um, it's basically a way to use some of your LUSD to, it's almost a, a mini leverage position, you know, where you're um, taking some of that minted LUSD and putting it back into, into ETH. And again, if ETH does have a terrible year and just drops 80% or something like that, then you're, you're going to come out negative. So there are some risks with this stability. Well, it's not just a straight up deposit your LUSD, earn whatever percent in LQTY. Uh, there's more to it than that. And you need to consider mm-hmm. that before you just drop all your cash in there. So yeah, of course. <laughs> LQTY is used as the reward token for for um, those who are participating in the stability pool. LU, LQTY has its own market. It has a fixed supply. Is that right? It's yep, already right. just it's set in stone. It's also immutable. There's no governance on it. Um, and it's tradable out there in the world, you know, on right. whatever DEXs you're using. Does it have any other purpose other than this? So it can also it can also be staked to earn all of Liquidity's protocol revenue. So uh, whenever people take out the loan and then pay that 0.5 percent fee, that's distributed directly to stakers. Um, And then whenever redemptions happen, um, there's a fee charged on that as well. Usually 0.5 percent, most of the time higher. That is also uh, paid to stakers. And so all of the revenue generated by Liquidity is sent directly to stakers. But LQTY's like key role within the ecosystem is to be this sort of incentive token for stability pool depositors because incentives are king and you need to make sure that people in your ecosystem are properly incentivized to do the things uh, that you need them to do. Um, and then also we have to uh, figure out a way to bootstrap the front end model, which we'll talk about later, but LQTY rewards play into that as well. So the pure value of LQTY one comes from just people speculating, but two comes from the revenue that's distributed to those stakers of which I think around like $25 million of revenue has been distributed thus far. Okay. Um, I guess uh, what I'm kind of wondering in my head is why would anybody hang on to LQTY? But if, if they're staking it and they're earning a percentage of the protocol revenue, then there's something there. Right. Um, and just bringing up uh, like LQTY is hanging around $6 right now. Oh, what happened uh, today? Quite a nice jump. Um, but anyway, we don't talk about token prices here. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it is the type of thing where, um, you have to weigh what's right for you, you know, as you earn those rewards, does it make sense to stake them? Does it make sense to sell them? Um, you know, whatever it might be. So, uh, so that's, that's the ecosystem, right? We sort of ran through it. It, 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 from the point of depositing your ETH all the way through to like stability pool, staking, earning protocol revenue, um, and no aspect of this entire thing, whether it's the the fee, the upfront fee, um, the um, the stability pool aspects, the liquidation mechanisms, the the staking, not one aspect of this entire thing can be modified in any way. Is that right? Nope. Nothing can be changed. The only thing that can happen is people can choose to build, you know, cool tools on on top of it, which we've already seen with like stability pool and staking and stuff. But yeah, the the underlying protocol itself, we can't change any of those features. Okay. Um, let's talk about the front ends for a second, because this is an important aspect that we haven't even touched on really yet. Um, let's do it. 
every DeFi project you use has a sort of official front end, right? So you want to use Compound, you go to compound.finance. You want to use Aave, you go to Aave.com. And then they have their web app that they host. Um, you know, and it might be hosted locally, it might be hosted on Amazon Web Services, you know, you don't know where it's really being hosted, but they run an official site that you can use um, and you trust. You're putting trust in them to develop it properly, to not put some weird stuff in there that's going to screw you up, to not let it get hacked. Um, And um, now, if you're more advanced, been around the space a little longer, you know, um, A, you don't need to use the official web interface in order to get access to any decentralized application. Like if it's an application, a smart contract on Ethereum, the blockchain doesn't know what website it's hooking into. Okay. It's any website, any, anybody can develop something that hooks into these smart contracts. So good examples of this are like DeFi saver or Zerion, or even like you look at Yearn, which, you know, Yearn vaults use multiple different, uh, smart contracts on Ethereum, each one might have its own official website, but you'd never know that if you're using Yearn because it's just plugging in all these different things. So, um, and then if you go even farther, you don't need a website at all to use any of this stuff. You know, if you know enough about how to use a computer and, you know, maybe you need a little bit more um, hacker mentality, you could fire up a terminal and just go for it, you know, or you can find ways to hook into the blockchain in different ways. So with that being said, um, every DeFi project up until now has had their official website. Liquidy made a decision um, to not have an official front end. And um, so explain to me how that decision came about and sort of the why behind it. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like if you launch a a fully decentralized, fully immutable protocol, um, it doesn't really make sense to like be the one party that controls the single front end for that, right? Like you, you kind of spit in the face of all the work you've done by providing a single point of failure for all of your users. And we've seen this recently, Damn, like with the I didn't Badger know this was going to turn in. I didn't know it was going to turn into a Uniswap bashing uh, a session, but okay, yeah, please continue. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not bashing, you know, I'm not okay. trying to bash anybody, but if you just think about it at face value, like it really doesn't make sense. And I know yeah. Uniswap is like taking some efforts to try to like encourage other stuff to be built. And but if you look at the Badger hack, for example, I mean, this was a simple. Uh, you know, their website was compromised and it ended up compromising all of their users because they built this one point of trust where all of their users aggregate and they all got, they all got compromised in a way that the user could probably just not have really prevented. Like how would, if you're a user, how would you really know this? Um, So Mm -hmm. that, that was like point number one. It's like, it just doesn't make sense. The other point is that if, we knew that if we could figure out a way to incentivize these front ends properly, that it would almost be like a referral marketing setup, right? Like you're, if you're incentivized to build this out, you're incentivized to promote it, you're incentivized to attract users. And so we know that projects like Zapper and Zerion and Instadap and DeFi Saver before, you know, they launched tokens and stuff were like in need of revenue models. And so if you, give them a revenue model on a silver platter, like maybe they'll be more incentivized to build this out. 
Um, so it, it was kind of like, those are the two big ones, but the final one is like just one of simple, simple, like from a legal perspective, right? Like if you build this decentralized immutable protocol that you want to live out on, on Ethereum, and then you control the one access point for it, like does all the legal liability fall on you? I, I don't know. Um, and so it's like one of those things you have to think about as a company. And so can, when you, you combine all of those points, it made sense to figure out a way to, to make this happen. And so we ended up creating an incentive structure that works pretty simply. Like if you're a, if you spin up a liquidity front end, which we provide a kit for front ends to start with, if they so choose, uh, they can spin up this kit and they can specify within that kit, what's called a kickback rate. And the kickback rate basically charges a small fee on the users of that front end whenever they make a stability pool deposit. But the fee um, happens over time. So like uh, whenever you deposit through a front end, a liquidity front end uh, to the stability pool, you'll earn LQTY rewards over time. But let's say you chose a front end that has a 99% kickback rate, which means they're charging a 1% fee. They'll actually earn 1% of all of their users' LQTY tokens over that time period. Um, and so this created a nice little feedback loop to where, you know, front ends are incentivized to attract users and users are incentivized to pick the front ends that are, you know, doing the most innovation because they're paying a fee to do so. So they want to make sure that they aggregate to the most valuable front ends in the ecosystem. I'm happy to dive into any of those mechanisms uh, to clarify. Yeah, I think this stuff is really important. I think it's, first of all, like we said before, like people haven't been thinking about this enough over the past couple of years, as far as you can have the most decentralized application on the planet. But if you are forcing people through this eye of a needle, which is your centralized point of access to the web, uh, to the web interface that hooks into the smart contract, you know, you're, what's a good analogy for it? It's like, you know, you got this beautiful decentralized thing, but in order to get there, you have to go through this ugly little centralized part. It's almost like it's saying like you have to do KYC or something to use the most decentralized stuff right. on earth, you know? And um, it's this gateway that you have to go through where you could be robbed or mugged or, or you know, something awful could be ha happen to you before you ever get um, to the next level. And that's what we've seen over and over. And, um, BadgerDAO, for those who don't know what Colton is referencing, their hack, um, somebody hacked their website. I believe it was through like a Cloudflare vulnerability or something. Yeah. And they modified it to give, instead of when you're, you're giving token approvals, um, instead of giving approval to BadgerDAO, they're giving approval to, I believe it was like a rogue smart contract, which then was able to just pull funds out of your wallet. So to you as a user, it looks totally normal. You don't know anything until your money's gone, you know, because you trust the website. You trust, just like you have for the past year or two of, of BadgerDAO, you've always trusted it. You trust the urine site. You trust the Uniswap site. You're trusting that site and you're trusting the security of that site. So with that being said, and I want to get into the regulation and the legal stuff in a second a little bit, but if Liquidity is saying, Liquidity is almost like just, throwing its hands up and saying, we have no official front end. Anybody can launch a front end. You can create your own, like, you know, build it into your app like Zerion might do. Or if it's me or you or whoever, you can take this kit, you know, 
sort of set up your own hosting if you want. There's even hosting services where you can do this and just throw your own up. Okay. And then it's up to these individuals to promote their own site, their own service. Why is it safer to trust hundreds and hundreds of these individuals running around just throwing up liquidity sites? Um, why is it safer to think that their site is secure, not hacked, versus an official liquidity front end that's run by people that actually are security conscious and actually give a crap about decentralization? Sure. I mean, it. I think it depends on the angle at which you look at it. So is it, by all metrics, default safer to do a model like this? Probably not, right? Um, but I think the important thing is that it, it it distributes the attack surface. And so the thing with Badger DAO, um, and I, I'm not trying to pick on them. Uh, this is an unfortunate accident. Like I don't think it was explicitly Badger DAO's fault. It's just the most recent example. But if you look at this example, all of their users are using that front end, or at least what, 95% of them, perhaps. The, the vast majority of their users are using that front end. And so if it's exploited, all of a sudden, all of your users are exposed to this exploit. In Liquidity's case, we don't have that same um, attack surface. Like it's very the attack surface is very different because you know one front end might be compromised, but that doesn't compromise all of the other users who have chosen a different front end that you know they decide to use. The other side of it is that it forced us to create this culture early on about being. Um, diligent in your research of choosing a front end. And I know this doesn't like, uh, this doesn't prevent attacks. It doesn't prevent even the smartest people from getting exploited. But what it does is it like inserts a level of caution beforehand. beforehand. So now you're aware of a problem that you may not have even been aware of before. So the Badger DAO hack, if you're not somebody who's ever been exposed to an ecosystem of decentralized front ends, is something that would have caught you completely by surprise. But in the liquidity ecosystem, people are default cautious about the front ends that they use, especially in the early days, people were very adamant about, you know, how do we trust this person? And you had to build as a front end operator, you really had to build a reputation for yourself within the liquidity community in order to gain usage. And over time, that reputation grows and grows. And so users end up aggregating to the front ends who have built the most solid reputations. So I don't think it's default safer. I don't think it's necessarily safer. I think the attack surface is just very different and probably more beneficial to users in aggregate than the sort of individual user, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, but what I'm hearing is it's it makes, um, it makes it more likely that there will be uh, problems out there. It makes it more likely that a hack or a breach could occur, but it'll occur on one out of a hundred or one out of 200, whatever the number is, um, front ends, right? So it would affect fewer people. Um, right. I'm not sure <clears throat> what level of comfort, honestly, that gives me. I, <laughs> well, it I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how decentralization works, right? So like, I mean, even if you decide to use DeFi, I mean, in general, it opens up all of these opportunities for you. But on the other hand, like so does so do the opportunities that your money gets stolen, and you just never get it back. But yet here, you know, th th people might not resonate with those consequences. Whereas if your bank account gets compromised, I can call my bank and say, hey, guys, somebody stole my money. I need you guys to take care of this, credit my account, et cetera. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, if we encourage users to use Ethereum, they get access to tons of freedom. But in the event that you slip up, 
you, you don't, there's no customer service to call. Right. And so it's kind of, it's that same philosophy where, yeah, you know, freedom, freedom kind of has its trade-offs. Decentralization kind of has its trade-offs. Um, but the other, the other thing that I want to highlight, and I think is extre- extremely important um, as a part of this conversation, if you're somebody who does not feel uh, safe utilizing a liquidity front end, you can actually spin one up yourself very easily. It's extremely easy to do to where you're running it locally on your machine. Um, we literally provided the whole kit for you. So it's just a matter of going to the website, downloading the kit, running it, and then you can run it locally on your machine and you reduce your attack surface dramatically by just running it yourself, uh, which is something that not a lot of protocols encourage. So that's another side of this that I think is very important. And hopefully uh, we've done a good job of like encouraging a culture that may or may not be more likely to do that. I know some of our biggest users do that, for example. Yeah. That's, and this is like, you know, if you're comfortable with, you know, technology type thing, uh, it is liquidy.org. And if you go under front ends on their top menu and go down to run a front end and scroll down to where you see launch kit, you'll see there's a, there's a repository, there's instructions for you to spin this up locally. Um, every DeFi project could be doing this. Right, every DeFi project probably should, and we maybe this is something we need to start demanding as users from from these teams. Not that they owe us anything at all, but I mean, it's like you know the the idea that we have to trust these centralized web servers that run on Amazon and on these different centralized by these different centralized companies. Um, the idea that that's the main way people are accessing DeFi just kills the entire idea of what we're trying to do. Now to say this is how decentralization works. It's a little extreme. Um, I think this is a pretty extreme move by liquidity. I think that not just saying we're not running a front end is, is um, radical, you know, and and if you compare it, for instance, to Bitcoin and Bitcoin core, um, like there is an official Bitcoin core application that's developed by the community or there's varying opinions on how it's developed, right? You know, sure. whether or not. But I mean, it's there is a if there was no official Bitcoin core, um, it would be, I don't know. I think it would be chaos. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like having that official um, implementation. Now that's different. That's not a website. That's a wallet and, sure. and, a, and a node. But you know what I'm trying to get at is I think that it's a radical move to. Um, to go this far, it does show truly sort of an adherence to these ideas of decentralization, but at the same time, it opens up a little bit of a Pandora's box with things that could go wrong. And a couple of things I think that could go wrong, A, what I mentioned before, like Joe Schmo's running uh, a liquidity implementation. You know, maybe he even owns um, a liquidity-like domain. You know, people can buy domains and point them to their front ends. Maybe he doesn't pay very good security. Maybe there's a big giant zero day out there for, you know, AWS or DigitalOcean or one of these like, you know, places where you can just throw up any site you want. Um, Lots of things could happen. And if everybody's running the same kit and the same code, it's possible that more than one of them could be affected at once. So um, there is reasonable risk, I think, um, that these front ends could run into issues. The other problem is, you could also throw up a liquidity front end, advertise it. And this is, we discussed this on Twitter a little bit, but yeah. the idea that that you could run a legitimate deliberate scam. So I could buy 
um, a domain today that looks like Liquidy. I could put up the exact UI that you guys promote. I could change the smart contract address on there to my own. That's going to just rip off whoever, you know, you deposit your ETH into the trove. It's gone. You're not getting anything back, but you don't know until it's too late because you didn't check the smart contract addresses. You didn't check the code. Um, I could even advertise it. I could buy, I could buy Google ads. I could buy Twitter ads. We've seen YouTube ads that are total scams. They point to scam sites, fake sites. Mm -hmm. So if there's no official liquidity front end to reference to sort of compare to, and everything looks good, feels good, and I'm ready to use it. And it looked like a legit ad and Hey, no, no interest. This is great. Let's rock and roll. Um, I feel like the risk is higher for, for scams in that regard. Uh, what do you think about that? It's hard to know. Um, I think the this is a very nuanced conversation because there's so many topics involved when it comes to like there's wallet security, there's front end security, et cetera. But I'll try to like focus on the liquidity side of it. I think the type of user who, in my experience, um, and yours could be totally different. So we're talking just perspectives here. The type of user that is likely to fall for such a scam and we're talking about these like uh, very intricate like google app well actually you know what they're not that intricate um they're just google is um maybe <laughs> never mind we won't talk we won't talk about about google here yet um but google has set up a system that makes it easy to fish people by setting up these fake accounts and then running google ads and then getting them on top of the uh search list the type of user that is likely to fall for that scam would fall for it regardless of whether we had an official front end or not, right? Because that type of user is Google searching for a particular outcome. And it could be, they're trying to go to uniswap.org. They're trying to go to liquidity.org. They're trying to go to maker. It doesn't matter. They're trying to go to a website and they're being misled by the search results to believe that a particular site is legitimate. And so this applies whether or not the, the, front end model is decentralized or not. And so I think they would fall for it regardless. So I don't know if it brings in increased risk. What I do think um, is a fair criticism is that, yeah, maybe the people who are running the front ends, uh, they don't have the quality of software engineers that maybe Liquidity has, for example. And so perhaps the odds that they get compromised could be higher, I don't know. Um, that's a, I think that's totally fair. And it is, it is true that that could maybe be the case. And so I encourage users who are using any type of front end to do your best to verify transactions before you sign them, right? So MetaMask just now rolled out this feature that should have been launched probably two, two years ago or something, but they just launched this feature that makes this easier for users. And so I think it's a combined effort of required um, user diligence and better uh, infrastructure on the wallet side to protect users from this type of attack. I think the front end model, it's hard to say whether or not our particular front end model increases all uh, risk of being scammed across the board. Uh, it, it just depends. Um, it depends on the type of user. It depends on the type of scam. So it's a hard conversation. We can dive into each like section of that if you want, but uh, that's my like general overview or thoughts of, of the landscape as it stands at least. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I think it's a really brave move. And I think that um, it, it, it really is um, the most important thing that it does, I think, is raise the conversation, you know, and I think yeah. the timing of this conversation is really good too with everything that's been going on with 
the problems we've been seeing, you know, with other centralized front ends. And I think um, the one thing that I would like to see from Liquidity, and again, I don't think any DeFi team owes us owes us anything, but I do think that um, in order to sort of take this to the next level, it would be good to have more resources for people who are trying to determine if the front end they want to use is a legit front end. Um, yeah. I know there's already like a directory, I think somewhere on Liquidity's site, like of maybe you might want to check these right. front ends out. They seem pretty good without actually saying they're official in any way. Um, but, uh, you know, some way, I mean, yes, you can check smart contract addresses. You can get deeper in there, but you mentioned before, like the type of user that you think is using it wouldn't fall for X, Y, Z, but, um, I think my opinion is any user can fall for anything at any time. Like on any sure. given day, somebody can make a mistake. Um, I've fallen into traps that I know better, you know, and it's just, I'm Same. so used we to all do. doing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's the kind of thing where we have to, we still, it's a, it's a noble step, but it's not perfect yet, obviously. And we need to right. then, and, and maybe this isn't the job of the liquidity team. Maybe now this is the job of the community. Now that we've seen this step bravely taken, it's up to us to figure out, um, how to take it to the next level and, and make it easier for people to navigate. Yeah. Do you think, um, sorry, I'll let you, yeah. Did you want to comment on that? I was I just going to say, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Like I, I do think there are areas that we could do better on like educating people. And I think what people will find in the liquidity ecosystem is that we're actually really willing to spend the time on that. I think the last time I, I ran the numbers, we've, we've produced more educational content than our closest four competitors combined this year. So um, we, we take a very serious stance on getting content out there, getting educational content out there. And we want to make sure that users can succeed within not only the liquid ecosystem, but hopefully any like project that touches the liquid ecosystem. So I, nice. I, that's something we can work on going into the new year, um, especially now that MetaMask has the tools that makes it a little easier on us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And, and by the way, I've been, you know, we're nearing the end of this chat. It's been an hour and 45 minutes and, uh, I've, I've asked you a lot of very difficult questions and, uh, criticized, made some criticisms and, and pokes and stuff like that. I just want to say like, I'm a huge, like, I think every, I think every part of DeFi should be as decentralized as liquidity or more, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, the complexity people try to build in that requires these centralized controls makes those projects just as centralized or more centralized than your bank on the corner. A lot of times, I think that having four people with access to a multi-sig that controls a billion dollars worth of value is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, and I think that yeah. it, that makes it more centralized than a bank. Okay, where uh, the bank owner can't walk out the door with all the money under his arms. Okay, right. The div, the admin key holder can. Okay, now in stable coins, we've been a little more responsible. We got DAOs and stuff. We haven't really seen too much total. Um, actually, I think there might be one or two that do have multi. There's been some chaos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And any fork of anything is going to be bullshit. So stay away from that. But um, but I think I still think that uh that this is the way I think that we should be experimenting. We should be taking noble steps and we should be, um, you know, sort of going out on a limb. 
So I just wanted to call that out, like even though all the criticism and stuff like it, but I, I still believe everybody should know what they're getting into, you know? So that's why I ask I the questions. And no, I, I completely roads. agree. And I think that's like a fair stance to take. And I, I also think it's important that people understand what they're getting into. And uh, on the you know topic of taking like noble steps. Yeah. I think, I think if anything, liquidity has started a lot of really good conversations this year um, about decentralization and about the steps that are necessary to get to the end goal that we all sort of hope for, for this space, because it could easily go the other way. Um, and I think it was starting to go the other way with the way that governance has been evolving in a way that's not, uh, not aligned with the way I saw this space evolving. And so I'm, I'm happy that you know, I get to work for a project like Liquidity that's really trying to push the boundaries in a different direction than where I think we saw a lot of a lot of projects go this year. I yeah, I still think that it is going the wrong way. I think that Liquidity is sort of a a fresh, um, really welcome addition to the space and sort of pushing the momentum against the 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 curve or pushing against the momentum. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I've said before, and I'll say it again. I do think that super centralized um, fake DeFi is going to catch on. I think that the most people in the world don't want to take these kind of risks. I think they want custody. I think they want safe solutions. They don't value decentralization or privacy or anything like that. Um, but you know, and we've seen this with Uniswap. On occasion, if a team can figure out a safe, secure, battle-tested way to remove all those knobs and levers. Um, I mean, the best example of this is Bitcoin. You know, like you remove all the knobs and levers, you remove all of the risk that comes with human emotion, you know, and and fear and stuff like that. And you just have this thing that builds up a network effect that's strong enough to make it valuable. All of a sudden, that decentralization becomes the selling point and becomes the value of it, you know, and I think that liquidity has the potential to get there. I mean, it already does to a certain extent have that value proposition, but I think that if it does, the one thing that's missing is it's, it's not fully battle tested yet. And when I say fully battle tested, I mean, it hasn't seen the crazy shit we've seen over the past, you know, two, three, four years in, uh, in crypto. I do want to add though, you, uh, really quick. I do want to add that it has been through some shit this year, this year. Like it, oh, it yeah, went yeah. through. Just, so while it, yeah, I agree. It hasn't been through like the craziest of crazy. It has been through some. Uh, it's been knee deep in some stuff this year that I think has been very interesting uh, in terms of like at least really early testing on the mechanisms within the protocol. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, well, sorry. let me ask you uh, just to follow up on that. Was there any point at which you guys were just sure it was going to break and it didn't? <laughs> There's no point we thought it was going to break, but there were points where we were like really nervous. Like for any time, the first time a mechanism is tested, we would get kind of nervous, right? Because we, this is its first time getting uh, tested in the wild. And so uh, whenever we first launched, for example, redemptions were turned off for the first 14 days. And so when that timer turned off and we we're like, okay, now redemptions might start happening the first one was kind of nervous because had to make sure that worked. Um, and then on on May nineteenth, when the market really just took a huge dump, um, it we had to liquidate I think like ninety million dollars worth of positions. That was obviously very scary because I was like, okay, this not only tested uh, the core liquidation mechanism, but also tested recovery mode and a whole bunch of different features. So um, yeah, the the first time everything happens 
we get really nervous because it's like, all right, this is the first time. But after that, uh, you know, we, we felt really confident. I mean, there's no other way to feel confident than to actually see something tested in the wild, regardless of all the security practices and the audits and the testing, et cetera. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's like when you think about that as a user, um, and Liquidity is very transparent and has been with documentation and the way things work, and they don't they don't have much to hide because there, there's no governance. The one thing that we don't have, and I haven't poured through the audits, so I don't know if some of this is in there, but and I wish every DeFi team would do this, and in the true spirit of decentralization, they should. But every development team has nightmare scenarios and every dev team knows the weak points that they're watching really closely and they know where things can go wrong. And um, now sometimes that might, um, you might not want to put that out into the world because it could be hacked or exploited. Um, But also there are other times, like for instance, if the liquidity dev team knows this little spot here where the oracles switch over or this little spot here where liquidations happen, what we're watching is if there's over a 30% price drop in two hours, we're a little nervous about this. You know, it's like that kind of, I would love it if dev teams would start to just put those things out there so that users could get a little more of a sense of what keeps them up at night. Because the same things that keep them up at night would keep somebody up at night who puts a million dollars worth of ETH into liquid. Right. Um, and a lot of times I think dev teams are just counting on them not thinking it through enough to get to that point. Whereas the dev is like laying in his bed with his eyes open, like, Oh my God. Oh my God. You know? So it's like, uh, that's the kind of stuff where I wish we had more transparency, but it's so hard to figure out how to achieve that. You know? Yeah. I think for us, we try to, we literally, we share so much information. I think 90% of the teams in this space wouldn't share about everything liquidity. Like we're extremely transparent about all the data. We're extremely transparent about the things that uh, we could have done differently at launch. Like we're extremely transparent about everything. And so for me, it's really hard to pinpoint something that uh, maybe that is interesting for us to watch that we haven't already shared publicly. Um, And a lot of that was battle tested in the early days, thankfully, Mm. um, or and non thankfully because the market dumped, but um, thankfully that we got that out of the way early, and it's not you know three years from now we've never been through a, a crazy market crash and there's you know twenty billion dollars in there. And it's like oh well you know shit wonder what's going to happen whenever you know ETH drops or whatever. Thankfully we've been through that already, and so we kind of know how the system will will handle it. We also know how right. the system will handle small troves, large troves, medium sized troves, all all of that stuff. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, and I know it's, this might be, you might not know the answer really, but I'm wondering if how much of a role regulatory risk played in the decision not to have front ends, you know, was this really the deciding factor? Because we've seen already, all right, Uniswap is a completely decentralized protocol, but at some point their lawyers said, you know what, you have an official front end, you need to ban countries that U.S. has has sanctions against. So you got to ban Iran, you got to ban, uh, all, you know, North Korea and all these different countries geo block them. Um, we've seen instances, uh, where other projects that have centralized front ends, but also have governance have placed, um, you have to sign a message on chain to acknowledge that you're not from one of these countries. So it's like, you know, obviously that wouldn't be possible unless the governance existed to allow that modification. 
Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that because you could like Liquid, he could achieve that with a proxy. So, um, but how much did that play into the decision to not have a front end? Um, I wouldn't say it was the primary role. It was just kind of one of the uh, one of the roles. But I think the bigger blocker there was philosophical on the company side. So, I mean, I, I'm like not blowing smoke up your ass when I say that like the decentralization philosophy is really core to the company and the people who are a part of it, a part of Liquidity AG, which there's like nine of us now. And so any decision we make is with decentralization in mind. And there's a lot of things that we chose not to do because it might sacrifice, you know, that's that philosophy or go against that philosophy. So it was really just like this one part of this like grander scheme of making sure that we don't violate the principles that we've set for ourselves in terms of like trying to maximize decentralization of the product and any future products that we may, we may build. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's nice, it's nice to have from a regulatory perspective um, because I mean, it, it just protects us from some of that liability, I suppose. But what it really protects us from is having to make those decisions for our users where, Oh, you're from XYZ country. Sorry, can't use it. Or, Oh, you're, you know, I don't know, whatever reason people might come up with to block people from using any any product, it prevents us from ever needing to make that decision. And people can go use a front end that they choose to use. And hopefully that front end makes decisions that are in the best interest of its users. If not, then they can just go choose another front end, right? So uh, I think it was more of a core philosophy point than it was like a, a major regulatory thing that we decided to do. Yeah, as you're saying that, it just struck me that, you know, it'd be interesting if one day... Um because we've we've already you know obviously stable coins are a huge topic in you know in Congress and with regulators um, we could see a day where where regulators decide if if you run a liquidity a, a liquidity front end you're a money transmitter right and they say it's illegal for you to run a front end and then we have a whole different set of problems um, you know I I don't think we should completely rule out that one day liquidity might have to launch an official front end. Like we don't know what the, we don't know what the future may hold. Yeah, we, I think we have regular, no idea what these old people are up to in, yeah. in office. Well, these days. I think that what I'm trying to get at is even this extreme measure from liquidity doesn't rule out the possibility that regulators might try to do something stupid, right? It's like you know, yeah. it's it's um it's unfortunate, you know, because that was my first blush was like, oh, they're not running a front end, so they're almost like, and it's immutable, unchangeable. So it's like they're almost like immune from the regulators. But then the more I think about it, the more I'm like, well, regulators could easily go after the front end operators. Regulators could easily go after Liquidity AG, force them to put up an official front end, force them to to geoblock, force them to put up a proxy. Um, now, obviously, there's workarounds. There's always workarounds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's it's it's Ethereum, and we know that. But I do think that. Um, most users do go through the official channels, you know, and it's like, it's, we haven't gotten to the point where people understand they can go around them yet. Um, yeah. so fair point. that is, yeah. Regulators regulation is a topic that should not be ignored in any of these conversations. Um, yeah. And I think bef- we should be putting, uh, a more concentrated effort on, on preventing stuff like that from even like needing to be a conversation, right? Like we really need to protect the, not only the rights of like the users in this ecosystem, but the the teams too. Like the teams are really trying to build uh, shit that could liberate people economically, and we want to make sure that they're protected as well. So that's something we really need to focus on. I think over the next couple of years, right? Some of them, not all of them. Yeah, some not of them. all of them, but 
once we once VC gets in there, it's tough, man. Um, <laughs> and the, but the one thing that regulators can't do and can yeah. never do and can never do um, can never touch is the liquidity version one protocol. So any regulator can say anything they want. They can do anything they want. They can throw anybody in jail they want, but they can never stop this smart contract the way they could affect potentially MakerDAO. They could force a vote in MakerDAO that could devastate the protocol. So um, I'm sure MakerDAO enthusiasts would argue with me there, but I do believe that regulation poses a threat. Um, Before I let you go, um, is there any work being done on a new version, a version two? Um, we are, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to say, any, I don't want to make any promises and I don't want to say anything that would lead people in the wrong way. We're constantly doing research on products that follow the same philosophies of liquidity. They are pushing boundaries in DeFi the same way that liquidity does. But yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much all, all the information I really have. Um, we're, we're doing research, we're thinking about new products, we're thinking about new solutions, but um, do I think like a, a liquidity V2 is going to launch in six months? No, of course not. Um, so that's pretty much all the information I have. It's pretty early. Uh, so I don't want to say anything that's like misleading or could put ideas in people's head. I'm sure that will already put ideas in people's head, but yeah, that's <laughs> well, basically look, all, mean, yeah. all I can share and slash all I know, honestly, at the moment. There will be a V2. I'm just going to say it because I don't even, I don't know anything about anything, but there will be a V2 because things change. Like we talked about before, oracles change. You know, they, something better than Chainlink might come around in a few years. Who knows? You know, so it's there will be a V2 um, as long as liquidity keeps going. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, of when, in my opinion. So, and that's not enough. <laughs> you know, I have no insight. For, I don't even know. I didn't know Colton before today. But I mean, it's like, you know, when you have an immutable thing, you can't change it. You can't upgrade it. You need to launch a V2 in order to make any improvements at all any optimizations and i yeah. can't imagine it would never happen so a cute joke is that maybe our competitors should catch up first before we start thinking it would be too so oh that's fair <laughs> <laughs> just stay off the airplanes man just stay off the yeah airplanes. stay off airplanes so. too all right well this is a great chat um i hope that uh people basically come away with the pros the cons you know the ups and downs of all these different solutions it really, you know, we talked a lot about just the whole stablecoin ecosystem, and, and I think that it's going to be really useful for people. So thanks for taking the, the full two hours, man. That was brave. Yeah, really no worries. Th- thanks for having me. I think this is a cool conversation and an important one, too. Agreed. Agreed. Thanks. And by the way, liquidity.org is where you can go to um, to learn more about liquidity. If you want to find um, a front end, they do have a um, a lot of tips for you and some some options if you go to the front end section of their website, um, and it's definitely worth checking out. So thanks again, Colton. Yeah, anytime. <laughs>